Episode 126, Abernathy Furniture. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a February 9th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. And coming up only to show you Operating a furniture manufacturing company in territorial Kansas was risky. Demand for furniture on the frontier was light. But one client could always be counted on for a purchase, the deceased. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine furniture from the Abernathy Brothers Furniture Company of Leavenworth, Kansas. Though they started small and at times relied on selling coffins, the Abernathy Brothers built a furniture empire on the plains. During World War I, Germans in Kansas were plotting treason. At least, that's what Kansas Governor Arthur Capper thought, and he referred to them as slackers. Join us as we go behind the scenes to examine the slacker files, which are part of the Historical Society's latest digital initiative, Kansas Memory. Was Capper's German paranoia justified? Or was someone using him as the heavy in a neighborhood dispute? Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect the small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Epic Center in Wichita. Rising 22 stories above the Kansas Plains, the Epic Center is the tallest building in the state. Did White once attempt to test theories of surface tension by throwing water balloons from the top of the Epic Center? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Abernathy Furniture. Good afternoon, Blair. Good afternoon, Merle. Today we are going to discuss three pieces of furniture made by the Abernathy Brothers Furniture Company in Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, this company is interesting because it was a local company, but um, you know we began to notice that their furniture seems to pop up a lot, comes to our attention a lot, quite frequently, and um, from all over in Kansas. Um, today, we're looking at a crib used in Parsons in the 1930, 1930s, a uh, sturdy-looking office chair from Osborne County, Kansas, and an early 20th century sofa bed from McLeod, Kansas. These were all made by the Abernathy um, Furniture Company. You are uh, correct, sir. <laughs> and, it's, and it was founded by siblings James, William, and John Abernathy. Who were these guys, and how did they end up in Leavenworth? Uh, they're like a lot of people that are coming to Kansas in the 1850s. They were born in Ohio, were raised in Indiana. In the territorial days, they were very much interested in the free soil movement in Kansas. So they came out here, came to Leavenworth, which is a good choice. It's the first city of Kansas. It's got the Army Post there. You know there's going to be a good opportunity for business no matter what. It was probably the most established city in the, in the territory, yeah. right? Yes. It was a great place for them to come. They come and start a business, furniture business there, which was, we don't know if they're building furniture right away, 
they may have been acting as agents for someone because at that point, it's most likely people out here or in Kansas City got a lot of furniture from St. Louis. There may have also been a furniture maker in Kansas City by that point, too. What do you mean acting acting as agents? Like salesmen? Like salesmen, selling? essentially, yeah. They get a line of furniture from some other company and start selling it there. And uh, there may have even been, a, this may even have been a bit of an undertaking, literally. Uh, <laughs> they were undertakers. Uh, well, a lot of furniture businesses, even locally, who sold other companies' furniture, uh, they'd frequently be the local undertaker as well because caskets were usually a line of furniture or considered oh, wow. a line of furniture. So, and Abernathy was no different when they started building furniture. They they did make caskets. The furniture company was founded in 1856. Um, in 1856, the population in Kansas was pretty scarce. Was there a demand for nice furniture on the frontier? Uh, I mean, I thought everyone kind of brought their furniture with them in the wagon when they, when they came across. <laughs> yeah, they did bring a lot of their furniture with them if they could, if there was room in the wagon. But there was need for additional furniture. And uh, again, this is sort of why I think they may have been agents for some other company at first. Because that way they could get the furniture from that company, get it shipped to Leavenworth, and then sell it to families in the city or in, in maybe in outlying areas, too. So at first they may have been working for a St. Louis-based furniture company. Or Kansas City. Or Kansas or, City, yeah, where there yeah. was bigger population. Yes, so it's still relatively, that was actually a relatively settled city at that point. Uh, in 1861, the Civil War broke out. How did that impact the Abernathy Furniture Company? Probably did it in a couple of ways. For William, he, he stays home during the war, and he runs the business, and he actually sets up a partnership with a, some other people in Kansas City uh, for a furniture business. And again, it's sort of, they're selling caskets as well, and, and that business too. That but he's also, be, I mean, yeah. That seems to be kind of the staple, like that's the, that is the, um, you know, kind of the baseline support is it, selling caskets. Well, it makes it a little sense for a furniture maker. If you're working with wood, uh-huh. Making wood caskets, it's certainly where, – where else would you go to have somebody who is really right. trained in making good quality caskets? It works for me. Uh, William sets up some businesses in Kansas City as well as takes care of the business at home in Leavenworth. William does not live out the 1860s. He dies in 1869. James, on the other hand, he goes to war, and he does this in a big way, and it's probably in one of those ways it really helps – him after the war because he gets to be the lieutenant colonel of the 8th Kansas Infantry. Okay. The colonel of the 8th is John Martin, who is local publisher in Atchison and becomes governor in the 1880s. Well, before the war is out, Martin resigns his commission since in 1864 near the end. So for a brief time, Abernathy also gets to command the 8th Kansas. Oh, wow. So he's, he's in a good social position with just that alone. And he comes back and works with William as to what the businesses they've put together. And over the years, James James is very good at business. This he, is the war hero, This right? is the war hero. He, he he appears to be good at everything. Yeah. Oh, he was. He was very good. He got involved in a bank in Leavenworth. He starts... In a good way. In a good way, yeah. <laughs> He's on the board there. He starts the First National Bank of Kansas City. Oh, wow. Which is still around, although I forget which one of the current banks it now is. It may be Bank of America or something like that, or part of Bank of America. But 
It's a, it stays in the family for three generations. The building that becomes First National Bank in Kansas City is the current Kansas City Public Library downtown. This is all to the good. He's also mayor of Leavenworth for a time. So he's much more than just a furniture maker. He's a he's an entrepreneur. He with really connections. is. Oh yeah. They said at the time of his death he had an estate over a million dollars. That was in 1902, which is not much to sneeze at. No. <laughs> Well, here we have a crib, an office chair, and a sofa bed. Uh, that's a pretty broad inventory. And I suppose, you know, if we maybe someday we'll find a casket to throw in there, too. Um, <laughs> did Abernathy focus on, on any particular type of furniture? Not really. Uh, they probably started off slowly, from what we can tell in the catalogs. They didn't produce a lot of things. But as the company grew, they expanded their line quite a bit. They don't appear to be great innovators. They make just good standard quality furniture. It's mm-hmm. nothing remarkable about it. It's probably like furniture you could buy elsewhere in the country at that time. It's in the 1940s, the company expanded and built a plant in Kansas City. Uh, what was the key to their success? What were they doing different than your average furniture maker? Okay, well, I think there's a little, there's a little misunderstanding that they're in Kansas City long before the 40s. What was happening in the 40s was the Leavenworth plant was slowing down, and they actually concentrated probably a little more on Kansas City. But remember, William starts that business back in the 1860s. And actually, they built a plant, I think, in the early 20th century, or maybe late 19th, uh, in the West Bottoms of Kansas City. That building is still there, by the way. You can still see the ghostly image of the Abernathy name on the building. But it's a good location. Right, you can see it from I-70 when you drive through the West West Bottoms is the old industrial part, and you can see Abernathy on the side of one of the buildings. And their Leavenworth structure still exists today. A couple of Leavenworth structures are still there, too. But that's a good location for them to expand to Kansas City. The West Bottoms is where you have the connections to the railroads, which are going out everywhere. Mm -hmm. So... Any idea what happened to um, what happened to Abernathy? Like the, the furniture company? Did it did it just get absorbed by another company? I think that's what happened. I've I've still been trying to nail this down, and I haven't quite done it yet. But it does appear that by the mid nineteen fifties, Leavenworth is shut down, and Kansas City is still operating. But it appears that they were absorbed by somebody else who closed down Kansas City and took the operation elsewhere. Sort of a typical thing is the uh, in the post-war era too. In some ways, that you just see consolidation of businesses. And, and now there's just Nebraska Furniture Mart. You just have the Nebraska Furniture Mart. Thank you, Warren Buffett. <laughs> so the crib was used in Parsons, which is in southwest Kansas. The office chair was used at an insurance company in Osborne, mm-hmm. which is north central Kansas. And the sofa bed was from McClough. Okay, I can kind of understand the McClough thing because that's not that far from Leavenworth in Kansas yeah. City. But I'm pretty impressed that their furniture ended up all the way in Parsons and in Osborne County. Uh, did all these people come to Leavenworth to shop for their furniture? Was 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 Abernathy like the IKEA of its day? I suspect if they didn't order it from Leavenworth, they probably had local agents or local salespeople that did that because they, they, it wasn't just in Kansas. They went into Missouri and Nebraska. Uh, again, that has to do with the railroads. It's just 
good planning to sell your product along the railroad route so that <laughs> so do you think was the furniture being sold out of hardware stores in these towns or did people just like mail order them and they came uh, actually i think it's probably more if you I know some place like Osage City did have a furniture store. They didn't make their furniture there, and but they did order from a company and sold it. They may have even sold from Abernathy. Mm-hmm. So and I think that's probably more the case. You just had a local business that sold furniture, and they became essentially the sales agents for Abernathy. All right, Blair. Well, thanks for telling us about the Abernathy Furniture Company. You're quite welcome. All right, on this podcast, we have talked about Abernathy Brothers and the furniture business in Leavenworth. The first city of Kansas was quite a manufacturing town, and there is one business founded in 1858 that continues to this day, and it's the subject of the Kansas quiz today. To survive, it has changed the focus of its business a few times, but it's done so successfully to be the state's oldest operating manufacturing firm. Can you guess what it is? Here's a small hint. One of its early products kept many a Kinsen warm and or well-fed. During national conflicts, civil rights tend to become murky concepts. It was no different in Kansas. During World War I, Governor Arthur Capper felt compelled to seek out suspected German spies. The documents he acquired became known as the Slacker Files. Today, we examine these files with the Historical Society's Digital Initiatives Coordinator, Michael Church. Were Capper's efforts justified, or were they blatant violations of civil rights? In 1918, a flag that read Slacker was placed in the front yard of Phil Crabb in Ada, Kansas. The flag was part of a local dispute that eventually involved Kansas Governor Arthur Capper. Michael, uh, what was meant by slacker, and what was the nature of the dispute? Uh, well, with with U.S.'s uh, with the United States involvement in in World War One, slacker uh, was really a term uh, used to disparage anyone who was um, thought to be. Uh, a German sympathizer or disloyal to the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, today when I think of slacker, I think of um, disaffected youth, apathetic kids who drop right. out of society. Won't and get off the couch. Won't get out, won't quit playing the video games. Right. And they, uh, you know, they don't want to contribute in any way or they're not motivated or, or you know, older hippie dudes like uh, the Big Lebowski or somebody right. like that. It's a good thing we're not sticking flags in people's yards for that term right. today. So, you know, but back then, during World War One, it really meant uh, disloyalty to the U.S. government and not supporting the war effort. And, and there were a few ways uh, that you could do this. You could not buy war bonds. Um, you could refuse to enlist if you were a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, you could f- refuse to fly the American flag. Or if you spoke against the war um, or against the U.S. government. Um, all of those ways, um, they would get you on the slacker list. We know this dispute, um, we know about this dispute that happened in, in Ada, Kansas, because of correspondence that was produced. It's all part of what's called the slacker files. Uh, we talked about what slackers are, but w- w- can you talk a little bit about this speci- specific collection of correspondence? Yes, so this is part of the uh, Governor Arthur Capper's uh, governor's records. 
Uh, he was uh, governor of Kansas from uh, 1915 to 1919, and after that he became senator. Um, but we would have acquired these records directly from the governor's office. This specific file, it's uh, what he termed the slacker file. I mean, there are actually folders that say slackers right. on them. Uh, is part of his correspondence series. Slacker was a common term, right? It was not just an Arthur Capper term, slacker? No, oh, yeah. This was, yeah, all over the country. Okay. Yeah, uh, used to identify people who were not supporting the war. And it was obviously a term that was meant to shame anybody into into change. And and interestingly, uh, it, it was they they were using the word slackerism. Uh, it, it became a state of mind. <laughs> you know, there's and Kepper would say repeatedly, there's no room for slackerism in Kansas. Uh-huh. You know, this state of mind we we cannot tolerate. It. It's intolerable. Um, but uh, it, it was it was a file he kept um, of letters he received from people, uh, Kansas residents, who were mostly concerned with their neighbors or other people in the community who they thought were were um, not supporting the war effort or or were actually disloyal to the to the U.S. government. Um, it, it also includes his responses to those people as well as to the accused, um, and his very interesting correspondence with the U.S. attorney in Kansas City, Fred Robertson. Um, who he he sent a lot of these letters on to Fred Robertson to investigate. Right. And Robertson did investigate, and Robertson would write him back and say, you know, we went out to this community and talked to these people, and this is what we found out. And um, so, so most of it is people really accusing their neighbors of doing things, and, you know, not dissimilar to some of the things uh, that are going in other periods of American history, or, or even now, uh, with the war against terrorism. And there are certain parallels with... Um, incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, or uh, the anti-communist uh, hysteria during the Cold War, um, or since 9/11, kind of the anti-Muslim hysteria. Mm-hmm. And from the ones I've read, it, it's not—it's not a situation where Capper wrote to inquire about more information and circumstances. It was—it was like he got a complaint, and he sent them a hot, angry letter. He was a judge, jury. You know, he wasn't, you know, there's no law enforcement. He wasn't, he wasn't punishing them, but he, I mean, they, they got a hot, an angry letter from the governor of Kansas. Yeah, there's actually, uh, it's an interesting dynamic that he has when he, he's creating when he writes these letters, because obviously he is the governor, but uh, at the same time, these letters are, are fairly, they're couched in friendly terms. Mm-hmm. So he would say, I'm not writing in my official capacity as the governor. I'm writing as a friend to a friend mm-hmm. who's concerned, you know. And, and really, Signed the governor. Signed the governor. I mean, <laughs> that, you really can't do that. I mean, he's the governor. So, uh, and, and he would, you know, come out and tell uh, people that, uh, you know, this kind of behavior that they were accused of, and, and he wouldn't question whether, whether it was true or not. He would actually say, I hope this is not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as we talked about, really uh, the, the majority of them were neighbor complaining against neighbor because they weren't contributing enough to the Red Cross Fund. Right. And this is, I mean, mind you, this is like turn of century. People didn't have a whole lot of money to be throwing $25 at a Red Cross Fund. So it's legitimate why they're not doing this. Sure. But some of these get pretty serious. Like in July 1918, Capper wrote to the U.S. District Attorney Fred Robertson stating, Dear Fred, I believe you could do a powerful lot of good by sending a secret service man out to Wilson, Kansas, to round up one or two German sympathizers. There are many out there, and if you could get one or two, one or two, and soak them, it would have a most wholesome effect. I mean, that that's pretty serious allegations. That's almost treason, right there. Um, people die for that kind of stuff. Yeah, and he's telling federal agents to go investigate these guys. Um, was that common in the files? Uh, yeah, it's pretty common. Um, uh, I, I mean, uh, some of the letters 
just um, are accusations against people uh, that aren't buying more bonds are speaking critically of, of the U.S. government, but, but they don't necessarily identify them as Germans or as German sympathizers. But many of the other letters do specifically say, I have a German sympathizer in my community, or maybe more often, there is a pocket of German sympathizers in my community, a little group um, that uh, these people want investigated. So, And, you know, there were actually uh, large German communities in central Kansas mm -hmm. uh, at that time. Um, and you know, many of them uh, spoke English, uh, but many of them um, spoke German almost um, consistently, uh, even in, in their, uh, m many of them were, were Mennonites or uh, of other religions, and they continued to uh, conduct church services in German. So uh, th there, th there was a lot of concern that, that um, these German communities would harbor pro-German sympathizers or, or people who would uh, directly act against the interests of the U.S. government. Um, and, and what made it worse is, uh, especially with the uh, Mennonites, uh, they followed a religious principle of, of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. So that means that um, if they're going to stick to that principle, they, well, they, their young men can't enlist in the, in the army. Right. Uh, and uh, they can't buy war bonds to support a war. So uh, that really puts them at odds w with uh, the uh, the efforts of the the councils of defense who are going out to to uh, drum up this kind of support, and um, so so you have this kind of confrontation between those. So, two. so you have German Mennonites who come to the U.S. for you know religious freedom, and it's their religious freedom, in fact, that's like getting them you know in trouble because they can't prove how patriotic they are by going off and enlisting. Right, right. Much of the correspondence includes, um, basically, there's a local complaint, and then there is a letter of reprimand from the governor. Are there any replies or justifications from the accused? Did the accused have a voice in this at all? Yeah, they did, uh, and actually uh, quite a strong voice in some cases. Um, uh, what I didn't find are, are any um, anyone who was accused of being a German sympathizer. I didn't find any really responses from from those uh, people. That's because the Secret Service agents yeah, went out there and hauled well, them off to the clink. Robinson, yeah, they went and <laughs> went and rounded them up. Um, but uh, there were uh, quite a few people who responded uh, to the accusations. Um, and, and it's interesting, uh, you know, the arguments they give. It was mostly uh, revolved around a personal conflict with somebody in their community mm -hmm. uh, that predated uh, this, uh, the war effort. Mm -hmm. So they, they would say, uh, you know, this has nothing to do with whether I'm patriotic or not. It's because this person who's part of the Liberty Loan Drive who came to me, she's my personal enemy. Mm -hmm. And I, there was no way I was going to give her... Uh, let her sign me up for these war bonds. So I refused, and when I refused, she called me a slacker and turned me in. Mm -hmm. You know, but but actually, I went to my banker, and I, I've already signed up for war bonds. And and you, you see this repeatedly: people writing in and and uh, giving accounts of these personal issues they had with people. And, and and then in other cases, you get people writing in, complaining to the governor, governor about the mobs. They called them mobs. Uh, who were these council of defense groups that would actually come. And there, there are some horrific stories about some of these mobs just getting out of hand. Mm -hmm. and, and they would threaten to, um, well, I mean, they tarred and feathered uh, quite a few people. Recently, the slacker letters were uploaded to the web on Kansas Memory. Uh, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about what Kansas Memory is and how people can access documents like this? Um, Kansas Memories are online repository um, for uh, the different things that we collect. So we, we create uh, digital versions of these things and we upload them on the website so you can get on and, and use the diaries and letters and posters and museum artifacts and things. Um, and uh, it's at kansasmemory.org. 
And to, uh, to look at the Slacker letters, you can just uh, search for a keyword, for the keyword Slacker, mm-hmm. um, and it'll come up in the, in the search result there. Or you can use our faceted uh, browse system to go to collections, uh, state archives, governor, look for Governor Kepper's papers and uh, find them that way. Yeah, it's great. It's, um, I mean, there's the high-resolution images of all these letters, so you're not reading a transcription. You're actually reading letters from Governor Capper and handwritten letters from these people and their, you know, angry neighbors. That's right. That's right. And you, so you can see the emotion in the handwriting. Yeah. Often, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Michael. Thanks for telling us about the Slacker file. Thank you. I'm Blair Torah. Now here's the answer to the Kenza quiz. If you knew it was the Great Western Manufacturing Company, congratulate yourself. The Leavenworth business started out as the Wilson Estes and Fairchild Western Foundry and Machine Shop. First made steam engines, repair parts for steamboats, and that bit about keeping Kansans warm and well-fed, well, they made wood-burning stoves. Later changed the name of the business to Great Western Manufacturing and began a full line of milling equipment. Today it has long since cut back on that full line, but it specializes yet in sifting and screening equipment. Great Western Manufacturing, a successful Kansas business from territorial days. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Historic Preservationist Specialist Sarah Martin. Hello. Uh... Good to see you, ladies. Thank you. You too. Today, we attempt to connect the Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to the Epic Center, the tallest building in Kansas. Sarah, could you give us a little background on the the phenomenally known Epic Center? (laughs) Sure. The Epic Center is a 22-story skyscraper, by Kansas standards anyway, in downtown Wichita. Built in 1989, this modern, sleek structure has a smooth cream-colored exterior with slightly exaggerated facades. It's best identified by its asymmetrical roofline that rises to a peak at one corner. It can also be identified by the fact that it's a really tall building (laughs) in Wichita. There's only like three. (laughs) Right. Plans originally included a second twin tower, but that was scrapped when developers realized there weren't enough tenants to fill the first tower. Today, the Epic Center houses law firms, banking corporations, and a variety of other businesses. Rising about 325 feet above the Kansas prairie, the Epic Center is 21 feet taller than the Kansas capital, making it the tallest building in Kansas. Now, for comparison, it would take four Epic Centers to equal one Sears Tower. I'm actually surprised at that statistic. I thought it would take more Epic Centers to equal (laughs) one Sears Tower. I'm a little sad that it's taller than the Capitol building. Really? Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, I'm sorry, it's kind of an ugly building. <laughs> you think so? I like yeah, it's very, it. Is. It's very modern looking, very corporate looking. Yeah, it is, yes. Um, all right, thanks, Sarah. Sure. Nikayla, uh, I believe you have a connection between William Allen White and this stratosphere piercing tower. I do, yeah. Um, it's kind of sad. It's pathetic. <laughs> what? Um, well, it's a stretch. Um, in addition to being it's a the, stretch, yeah, okay. <laughs> not like a skyscraper. Uh, in addition to being the home of Kansas's largest building, Wichita has also been the home of many world famous Kansans, among them the actress Hattie McDaniel. Now, McDaniel is best known for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Um, for that part, she won the Academy Award and was the uh, first 
African-American to win an Oscar. Mm -hmm. Um, She also played Queenie in the 1936 film Showboat. And Showboat was originally a Broadway musical based on the novel by Edna Ferber. Right, right. Edna Ferber was good friends with William Allen White. Wow. Yeah. It's hard to connect a building in which Especially a building building constructed in 1989. Yeah, I'm I'm impressed. (laughs) Let me tell you, Wikipedia, you're no help at all. (laughs) Well, that's good. Um, All right, Sarah, you want to introduce the um, challenge for the next episode? Sure. Next time, we put a Valentine's Day twist to the tall buildings theme when we attempt to connect William Allen White to the Eiffel Tower, an icon of the world's most romantic city, Paris. That was also a bit of a stretch. Uh, <laughs> it's, I guess it's Valentine because it's in Paris. Are we like on a building theme now? <laughs> what is going on? And as you guys know, it was built by Gustav Eiffel for the 1889 World's Fair. The Eiffel Tower is a monstrosity of steel lattice work, and it's also a favorite target for destruction in Hollywood movies. Right. That's when you know it's a serious threat. The world's coming to an end is when, is when, this, is when the Eiffel Tower gets blown up. All right. So join us next time when we connect William Allen White to the Eiffel Tower. Did White once cause a brouhaha on the tower for exceeding the weight oh, limit yeah. while attempting to board a dirigible? Find out in two weeks. Thanks, ladies. Sure. I'm coming up only to show you down for That concludes episode 126, Abernathy Furniture. If you would like to read slightly paranoid letters from Governor Capper's slacker files, just go to kansasmemory.org. If you'd like to see images of the fine furniture made by the industrious Abernathy brothers, go to our website, kshs.org. While you're there, be sure to fill out a podcast survey. Or better yet, become our friend on Facebook and receive daily tidbits on the mind-blowing history of Kansas. In the next episode, Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin examines a pair of dirty old overalls. After years of refinement, the overall has proven to be the perfect fit for Kansas farmers and has become their standard uniform. This pair was made in Fort Scott by Key Industries. Why do overalls look the way they do? And why don't they have sleeves? Find out in two weeks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Ready?